0: hi
1: hi how are you i'm all right i've been craving like shitty boxed macaroni and cheese so i'm probably gonna have that for dinner tonight
0: that sounds good i've been craving sushi but i will not get that probably at all this weekend so
1: that's a bummer yeah we're probably gonna get poke bowls tomorrow
0: that's nice you are you oh yeah you're you're going to
1: going out of town
0: yeah to
1: go buy some manga (laughs) because we have i've had a bad week and i need it's my my
0: fucking retail therapy oh man i had a weird week
1: work is dumb right now
0: (laughs) my work is dumb too but not for the same reasons i just work with a fucking boomer i mean same (laughs) couple of them actually And i work these 12 hour days where he just stands there and tries to talk to me red one on the news i don't care dude (laughs) <laughs> keep the news to yourself i'm limiting the amount of news i'm reading right now for Same. my mental health but i'm also on social media so there's only so much i can avoid but uh yeah have, have a great time get your getting your pokeballs i will sound like you said pokeballs. that's definitely what i said oh
1: okay so whenever are we... you're ready <laughs> okay i was like what are we doing i don't remember oh god we've only done Welcome to The Strange and Unusual, where we discuss The Strange and Unusual. This is episode 107 of our series, seeking out the weird, the unexplained, and the devious from around the world. I'm Roya.
0: And I'm Casey.
1: And today we are covering inspirational crimes, or rather crimes that have inspired films.
0: I don't think anybody is incredibly inspired by what's going to be happening today.
1: I hope no I hope not one is inspired. I mean, you you kind of got a comeback story uh, a little bit.
0: We'll get there.
1: I do not. <laughs> so, what are you talking about today?
0: Um, I will be telling you the story of Olympians, the nineteen ninety four scandal of Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan. Ooh, it's a doozy.
1: I know. A limited amount i was you know we were alive during it and i remember
0: my we mom alive being, <laughs> we were i mean we were, we were. Four, i was four i don't like, remember ja- i wasn't even four yet because it was in oh no it was, yeah it was in january yeah it was well, the like, beginning I, of january so we were not quite four
1: yeah i remember my mom like being shocked about the olympics <laughs> i don't remember like what happened but i remember her like freaking
0: out well, about what you, happened i'll tell you all about it yeah momentarily
1: <laughs> how about you uh so i am talking about the moonlight murders in texarcana um which inspired a film by a texar oh
0: wow <laughs> that's a lot of tech and also arcanons <laughs> don't just hold on to your butts because there's gonna be a lot more okay <laughs> well um mine is bad but nobody dies
1: mine is bad and a lot of people die.
0: maybe i know you just went first in the last one i month. don't
1: care i'll go maybe first you should go time first, time first because again. i've got i've consistently got terrible cases yeah we was murder
0: <laughs> hell yeah
1: uh way to start the show <laughs> sexual assault Oh. Sexual assault with a foreign object and Ooh. suicide. Also, because I forgot that it was a thing, we've got social media. Check it out.
0: <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> I was You're just gonna welcome. wait till the end. <laughs>
1: uh, so this case has inspired several movies. Most notably is the town that dreaded sundown, that was filmed in 1976. It was actually made by a person from Texarkana where the crimes were committed. It's also like remade in like 2014. And there have been a couple of other movies and documentaries that have covered the Texarkana Moonlight Murders. Okay. Uh, most notably, it's one of my favorite documentaries actually called Killer Legends. Um, if you ever have time to check it out, they also did a documentary on Cropsey, which I've covered in the past. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But they cover this case in their like investigation on uh, like local legends and how the origins of uh like folklore americana folklore and stuff um so close to midnight on february 22nd 1946 jimmy hollis and his girlfriend mary jean larry or laray uh were parked on a secluded lover's lane after a date to see a movie um like i said the area was secluded but it wasn't out in the middle of nowhere it was only about 300 feet away from the last row of city homes uh, ten minutes or so after they parked, a man wearing a white cloth mask that was described as looking like a pillowcase with eye holes cut out appeared at Hollis's driver's side door, shining a flashlight inside. Hollis initially thought that it was a prank and told the stranger that he had the wrong per- person, to which the man replied, quote, I don't want to kill you, fellow, so do what I say. Mm. Uh, both Hollis and LeRae were told to get out of the driver's side door. The stranger told Hollis to take his pants off, and once he did, the man struck him in the head twice.
0: They both had to get out the driver's side? Yeah. That's annoying.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it was 1946, so I don't assume that there was like a center console. It was probably a bench yeah, seat. Yeah, like but a bench seat. Yeah. yeah, still annoying. Yeah. Um, Thinking the man was there to rob them, Loray showed him Hollis's wallet to prove that there was no money. And she was also struck by the gun. Mm. The man ordered her to stand, and when she did, he told her to run. She complied and ran towards a ditch. But the stranger told her to run up the road instead. When she complied, she started running up the road and she spotted an old car parked off of the road. It was empty, and she was again confronted by the stranger, who asked why she was running. Loret told him that he had told her to run, and he called her a liar and knocked her down and raped her with the barrel of his gun
0: oh god
1: right after the assault laray ran away again running half a mile to a nearby house where she pounded on the door and phoned the police when she was let inside while this was all going on hollis had regained consciousness and flagged down a motorist, and they also went and called the police. Within 30 minutes, Bowie County Sheriff W.H. Bill Presley and three additional officers arrived at the scene, but the attacker had already fled. I also kind of wonder if that abandoned car that Laray went up to was the killer's car.
0: Oh, that's I kind of just assumed. Yeah. Since he told her to run that way.
1: Lorraine was hospitalized overnight for her head wound, and Hollis was hospitalized for several days to recover from multiple skull fractures. Uh, Lorraine would tell the police that she had actually thought that Hollis had been shot because of the sound that was made when Hollis got hit by the gun. Oof. Um, Hollis and Lorraine gave conflicting reports of their attacker. Um, They both... So Larray claimed that she had seen under the mask and that he was a light-skinned black man. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hollis claimed that he was actually a tanned white man, around 30 years old, but he did state that he couldn't distinguish many features because he had been blinded by the flashlight. Both of them agreed that the attacker was around 6 feet tall. Uh, The police repeatedly challenged Luray's account, and they believed that the victims knew the identity of their attacker and was covering for them. What a dick! Why would- No! and that get continues fucked, I don't know what it is about Lorraine, but like all of the police that ever communicate with her are just trying to like just tell us who he is because we know you know who he is oh and she's God. like I would have fucking told you if I did you think like, I you
0: think I want to cover for this dude get yeah. fucked
1: oh makes um, be mad On the morning of March 24th, 1946, Polly Ann Moore and Richard L. Griffin were found dead in Griffin's car by a passing motorist. The driver saw the parked car and at first thought that the occupants were asleep in the car before a closer examination. Griffin was found between the front seats on his knees with his head resting on his hands and his pockets were turned inside out. Moore was found face down in the back seat. Ugh. There was some evidence to suggest that she had been placed there after being killed on a blanket outside of the car. Griffin had been shot twice while in the car, and both had been shot once in the back of the head, and both were fully clothed. Hmm. There there was an area outside of the car that was blood-soaked, and so they assumed that more had been shot there and then placed back inside of the car. Uh, congealed blood was found on the running board and had flowed through the bottom of the door and a 32 cartridge shell was also found uh, there are no reports that indicate either victim were examined by a pathologist remember it's 1946 yeah on april 14th paul martin picked up betty joe booker from a musical musical performance at the vfw martin's body would be found at 6:30 a.m later that morning laying on the left side of- on laying on his left side on the side of the road Uh, Blood was found on the other side of the road. Martin had been shot four times from behind, through his ribs, his right hand, and the back of his neck. Booker's body was found by a search party at 11.30am on the same day, almost two miles away from Martin's body. She was behind a tree, on her back, fully clothed, and her right hand was in the pocket of her coat. She had been shot twice, once through the chest, and once in the face. Oh. The weapon was confirmed to be the same as the first double murder, a 32 automatic Colt pistol. Martin's car was found three miles away from Booker's body and a mile and a half away from Martin's body. The authorities were not aware of who was actually shot first, and it was also confirmed by the medical examiner that both victims had put up a tremendous fight. Good. Tom Albritton, one of Martin's good friends, said that he didn't believe that an argument would have happened between the victims, and that Martin didn't have any enemies that he knew about, and definitely not anybody who would have been angry enough at him to do something like this.
0: Mm.
1: Virgil Starks and his wife, Katie, were in their home on May 3rd, a little before 9pm. Virgil was sitting in his armchair reading the paper when he was shot twice in the back of the head through the closed window behind him. Whoa. Katie heard the sound of the window breaking and came to see what happened. She explained that she saw Virgil stand up, then slump back down in his chair. She quickly realized that he was dead, and she called the police. The phone rang twice before she was shot twice in the face from the same window. She staggered and fell, but regained her footing and went to get a pistol from the other room, but she was too blinded by her own blood. Oh, God. She heard the killer at the back of the house, and she fled out the front of her home, barefoot, shot twice in the face, in the and face. covered in blood, having just seen her husband murdered in front of her. Yikes. She went to her sister's house across the road, but no one was home, so she ran to another neighbor. She managed to get out, quote, Virgil's dead, end quote, then collapsed. Prater, the neighbor she went to, got his gun and shut it, shot it in the air to summon another neighbor, Elmer Taylor. There, this is like a farmhouse, so they're right. not like immediate next door neighbors. Just go walk, you know, thirty feet, and you're at your neighbor's door. So right. when that she was, she had explained, to do a substantial
0: amount of movement to get to him.
1: And not just that; it also explains why Prater's first reaction
0: was to shoot a gun in the air yeah. <laughs> to
1: alert other neighbors. Bye, bye, bye. <laughs> um, Yikes. so. Prater sent Taylor to get his car and with the rest of Prater's family they took Katie to the hospital. She was questioned in the operating room about what happened because Jesus they were Christ. they were concerned that she was going to die. And oh, so okay, okay. okay. I, thought, this... I thought you
0: meant that they were like doing the same thing that they did to LaRay.
1: No, she had been shot twice in the face. Yeah. Like, it's a little hard to be like oh, you're clearly uh,
0: <laughs> suspicious. Like, Look, they did it to her I just assume they're shitty people and yeah. that they would do that.
1: Yeah, it's not like one of those like, you know, my husband got shot five times and I got a bruise on my forehead.
0: Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> oh, no. or who the 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 bad moms episode that you said the lady in the car with her kids and she like had some scratches. Yeah. That mm, that's an episode.
1: Um so she was questioned in the operating room about what happened. Um, no suspects were apprehended after La- uh, Larray and Hollis's attack. Um, Laray actually came back to Texarkana after Gr- the Griffin and Moore murder- murders uh, hoping that she could link their cases to what happened to her and Hollis to help identify the killer but she was still questioned by the police and Texas Rangers who insisted that she knew who her attacker was.
0: What the fuck?
1: And guys? like it's possible that she did know who her attacker was in like pillowcase well yeah like it's possible that she would have known who he was had he not been covering himself up with a pillowcase like it's probably a neighbor or someone she has seen all her life Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that she she knows him right knows who this is in front of her identify him yeah um Officers didn't even actually publicly connect the hollis Loray attack to the murders until May 11th after the Texarkana Gazette interviewed uh interviewed Leray and their interview was published. And that's where she was talking about, like, isn't this kind of weird? We have all of these similarities, but they're not connecting our case with their case. Like, we are on a lover's lane. It was two of us. He made us both get out of the car. He hit us. He attacked us he was vicious you know we're lucky we didn't die Mm -hmm. um after the griffin moore murders a citywide investigation was launched with several departments throughout the city over 200 people were questioned and about the same number of false leads were checked Mm -hmm. Uh, three people were found with bloody clothing and were taken into custody but all of them were cleared fairly quickly The Martin Booker case saw friends, acquaintances, and suspects questioned by officers who worked in 24-hour relays. Wow. The task force tried to even bait the killer by recruiting teenagers to sit as decoys in parked cars while officers waited. What? And some officers volunteered to be decoys either with their partner or uh, with mannequins.
0: Oh, mannequins. That's a solid choice.
1: There were even things that I was reading that, like uh police officers were climbing into trees in like Lovers Lane areas to have a birds eye view and be there but not be visible you know if the attacker showed up right um after the shock of the attack on Virgil and Katie blockades were put into effect and anyone driving in the area around the time of the attacks were taken into custody along with several men who had been found like walking around in the area Um, There were rewards for new information put in place. Uh, By March 30th, it was $500. After the Booker Martin murder, it was raised to $1,700. And after Virgil's death, it passed $10,000. Dang. That's a lot
0: for that time.
1: Yeah. There was some hesitation connecting the attack on Katie and Virgil's Starks to the other crimes because the weapon was different. Uh, they actually think that katie and virgil were shot with a rifle and not a pistol and the you know they weren't on a lover's lane they weren't young adults or teenagers like these were adults like they were right. like in their late 30s
0: My like us <laughs> <laughs> we're
1: not in our late 30s oh my god
0: no i meant adults oh i don't want to be an adult anymore <laughs>
1: By November 1948, the Starks attack was no longer considered to be part of the murders, but it is still, still. in like a modern, the moderns you know, conversation about the murders. It's still frequently believed that to be part of it. Um, The initial murders of Griffin and Moore obviously concerned the public, uh, but they were taken as an isolated incident as officials hadn't publicly connected the attacks to Hollis and Larray's. When Martin and Booker were murdered, though, it greatly increased the alarm as it was virtually impossible not to connect those two sets of crimes. Mm. After all... The two victims had been well liked. Um, Booker was popular in school. She was in the high, like the leader of the high school band. She won many awards, both like scholastic and musical. Um, and was even a former Little Miss Texarkana. She was in a sorority, she was like a junior in high school, like no one seemed to have really anything bad to say about her. Uh, Her high school classes even- Her high school even ended classes early on the day of her funeral so that everyone could attend that wanted to. Uh, Curfews were put in place for local businesses in an effort to keep people off the streets at night. Uh, The murder was then named the Phantom Killer by the local media. Um, also at this time, like, there were they were starting to have problems with vigilante teens who were who were trying to bait the murderer out themselves without like working with law enforcement or talking to them at all. And so they would just like go to these secluded lovers' lanes and like, just be chilling and waiting. And uh, one of the police officers who was working on the case remembered walking up to a car because he thought it was kind of suspicious, wanted to go check on him, goes up and checks on, you know, knocks on the window or whatever and says that he's a police officer. And the girl says, oh, it's good that you introduced yourself because I would have hated to accidentally shoot you. And shows him a pistol in her lap. Get it, bitch. So they were were armed vigilante teens who were hunting this killer. (laughs)
0: i love that for her
1: (laughs) 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 so tensions grew even more after the murder of virgil in his home leaving citizens of Texarkana feeling even more vulnerable they could now be killed in their own homes and like i said virgil and katie were older adults they were not teenagers or young adults these were people who had an established life who knew what they were doing who had a gun in the house you know and this wasn't even someone who broke in this was someone mm. who just shot through the window yeah so houses didn't remain unlocked after the murders uh, gun sales increased and some people even covered their windows um and used guards or other ways to protect their windows and doors um after virgil's murder local stores sold out of locks guns ammunition window shades and venetian blinds wow uh, when police were called to an address by a citizen, they made sure to turn on their sirens no matter what time of day it was, stand in the headlights, and clearly announce themselves so they weren't shot by a scared citizen. While the murderer was has never actually been identified, there are some details about the description as what is told that are probably that are thought to probably be true about the murderer. Uh, They described, so Hollis and LeRae were the only two who actually survived and saw the attacker. Mm -hmm. They described him as being six feet and under 30 years old. Like I said, they disagreed about the race of the attacker, and while it can't be definitively stated that it was all one perpetrator, it's widely accepted that it was. Right. Uh, the emma was that he attacked young couples in empty or private areas outside the city with a 32 caliber gun. He always attacked late at night and on weekends, with cooling off periods of about three weeks between the attacks. Uh, Dr. Anthony Lapolla, a psychologist at the Federal Correctional Institute in Texarkana, believed that the killer was planning to continue to make unexpected attacks like the one made against Virgil Starks. He also believed that all five murders were done by the same killer, who was between his mid-30s to 50, and stated that he was motivated by a strong sex drive and sadism. Lapolla would include that a person who could commit such crimes was intelligent, clever, shrewd, and not often apprehended. The killer was not afraid of police activity, but was aware of the increased difficulty in his preferred means of attack, which caused him to shift the target to the farmhouse and the Starks. Gotcha. He continued that he continued that the attacks showed evidence of planning and that the killer worked alone, told no one of his crimes, and could either shift his crimes to another community that was far enough away to not trigger Texarkana or manage to get over his desire to assault and kill people. There were a ton of false confessions and false leads investigated. In the Griffin Moore case, over 200 people were questioned. Three suspects were taken into custody, but no one was ever charged. There were two kind of potential suspects that I found while I was researching. It's one of those things where if you like go and talk to like the older people in Texarkana and stuff, everyone's got a suspect that they think mm-hmm. did it um, or different things like that. I want to say there was something in the i didn't have a chance to watch the um killer legends documentary again but i think that there's even like a video i think this is the case where there's um a video they managed to get of like a partial interview of one of the people they think was the murderer oh but he was like 80 yeah and so it's kind of like how how much can you actually believe from
0: that well
1: and and believe Right. He, if he's eighty, he has dementia. He remembers the murders <laughs> happening, yeah, but details are fuzzy. You know, like, um. But so the the main two suspects that I found that could have that actually kind of made sense are Ewell Sweeney. Uh, so Yule was a twenty nine year old car thief and counterfeiter. Um, he was arrested on in July, and he was being investigated by the car uh, about the car thefts. And realized on the night of the Griffin and Moore murders that a car had been stolen and a previously stolen car had been found abandoned in the area on the same night as the Griffin and Moore murders. So Mm -hmm. the police are starting to think like, okay, so he abandoned one car, killed them, stole another car to get away. Right. Um, The police arrested Sweeney's wife, Peggy, when she came to retrieve the stolen car. She confessed in great detail that her husband was the Phantom Killer. Oh, wow. Some of the details of her story changed across several interviews, and Mm -hmm. the police started to believe that she was leaving out some of the information, either out of fear of Sweeney or out of fear of incriminating herself. Uh, The police were able to confirm some of the details of Peggy's confession, including the specifics of where some of the belongings of the two murder victims had been discarded. There was a lot of circumstantial evidence, but Peggy's confession was the most critical part, at least until she recanted it.
0: Ah, fucking bitch. (laughs)
1: <laughs> the police worked tirelessly for six months to validate Peggy's confession yeah. and found the night of the Booker and Martin murders, the couple were actually sleeping in their car under a bridge near San Antonio. So they were not in town uh, on the night of the, the Booker Martin murders. Hmm. Um, the police still arrested Sweeney because he was a habitual car thief. right? Um, and there's some idea that he's it was suggested that it was, like, a um, an unspoken, like, deal that they would take him in for the car, thi- the car thievery and not the murders. Yeah. And that, you know, the police are kind of covering like a, up that he's the actual... Of, sort of plea deal.
0: Yeah. Sort of situation.
1: Um, And then, you're gonna love this guy's name, we've Can't got be. H.B. Duty <laughs> Tennyson. <laughs> Uh, so, duty was an 18-year-old college freshman who killed himself on November 4th, 1948, leaving very weird and cryptic instructions which directed investigators to a suicide note. In the note, he confessed to the Booker, Martin, and Starks murders. Um, he had played in the band with Booker, but they were not friends. However, investigators were unable to make any solid connections with him and the crimes, and a good friend of his actually provided an alibi for the night of the Starks murder. Huh. Like I said, there were many suspects, but most of them seem to be kind of dark rumors that surround this case rather than actual named people. Like, there was a World War II POW from Germany who escaped jail, and it could have been him. There was a weird dude selling saxophones. What if it was him? Like, you know, this, this, uh, this... Uh, war veteran says he doesn't remember some of the days leading up to the crimes and he's concerned that he could have accidentally killed these kids and not remember it because ptsd which is possible but i don't think that's what happened he's this guy's way too deliberate yeah and this wasn't tactical Right. You know, like, um, so no person has ever been proven to be the phantom killer. And the five murders in Texarkana are still unsolved. Um, And also, I think that it's interesting that there's a lot of similarities between the phantom killer and the Zodiac killer. Yeah,
0: I was thinking that too.
1: Um, And honestly, Son of Sam too. But, you know, Son of Sam is a little bit later in the yeah. game than Zodiac. Uh, but there is some kind of consideration that Zodiac may have been... The, the fan well yeah he may have been the phantom killer and then moved to yeah. california and that's where the crimes moved to that was far enough away from Texarkana and distantly no- enough enough r- from timeline wise and then to not he be moved connected. back
0: to texas and became the governor <laughs> yeah ted cruz
1: yeah he traveled <laughs> back in time and was reborn <laughs> uh, but yeah i mean just a reminder of the zodiac we've we did uh what two episodes about him? Yeah, in the um, two part. Yeah, so he was killed on Lovers' Lanes. He used a gun or a knife, predominantly a gun when he could. He was never, wore
0: a fucking pillowcase like hood.
1: Yeah, wore a hood and was not apprehended. Which yep. remember what Doctor uh, Lapalas said that he was you know intelligent, clever, shrewd, and not often not apprehended. It's that also, killer type.
0: I, I would just like to correct myself, Todd Ted, Ted, T- ted cruz is a senator not a governor oh who cares my
1: he went to cancun when
0: yeah fuck that guy
1: <laughs> when when snowpocalypse was happening in texas well, i wasn't going to cancun i was just taking my daughters to the airport yeah I was so gonna, far i'm gonna that blame
0: I... my child on
1: <laughs> yeah i was keeping them in the excitement for their trip by wearing board shorts and flip-flops in the middle of winter <laughs> yep to the airport
0: yeah, okay. I had a I have a coworker who I was I was pissed off about that. I it wasn't anybody I work with regularly, it was somebody else. I was covering a shift. And they were like, Well, wouldn't you do it if you were rich? I was like, Not if I was in charge of the fucking like if yeah. I was in a position of like leadership. No. It's like the time that you don't do that shit.
1: Yeah. Christ. It's like you 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 don't go golfing when yeah. a hurricane has happened and hit or, one of your one of your states.
0: Or right after nine eleven, if you're the president. Anyway. That's a that's a crazy story, and I uh I actually didn't know that much about it. I'd seen the um the uh I think it was a BuzzFeed Unsolved on that one mm, or maybe. something similar to that. Yeah, and I remember being like, they're not giving me very much information, but I feel more I'm feel more informed. And educated.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's shown up in a few different. Um, I think it was like in a Crimes to Remember episode. I don't think it was in Forensic Files. It was in Killer Legends. It's been in a few different, like, documentary style uh, shows like that, though.
0: Wee Child Abuse. Yay. Todd Molestation. Boo. Domestic Violence and Spousal Abuse. Yay. <laughs> this is, I'm getting some mixed things here. Manipulation, Alcoholism, Assault, and Secondhand Embarrassment for These Stupid-Ass Criminals. Uh, so, let me tell you about Tanya Harding. She was born in Portland, Oregon on November 12th, 1970. She belonged to a poor blue-collar family and was raised primarily by her mother. Um, But her family life wasn't exactly stable. Um, She's said to have had a dysfunctional childhood in the ABC special I watched on her. uh, Her family had moved 13 times before she was in fifth grade.
1: Jeez.
0: Tanya said in her book that her half-brother Chris Davison uh, molested her on several occasions as a child. And at one point when she was 15 years old or so, um, he would have been 26 at the time to put that in perspective. She actually called police and he was arrested and he served some jail time. Um, but her parents pressured her not to press criminal charges against him.
1: Gross.
0: Um, she said that they were in denial about his behavior and her parents then divorced when she was 16. That's some
1: probably con- for the best.
0: Yeah. While some consider them white trash... Tanya's mother, LaVonna Golden, said that they were not trailer trash, and they had a beautiful new trailer. Tanya's father, Albert Albert Harding, worked various jobs, including um, driving a truck and working at a bait and tackle shop. But he was often unemployed due to health issues. Tanya loved her father very much. They'd go fishing and hunting. They'd work on cars together. She was as very much a self-proclaimed tomboy. She liked hanging out with her dad. Um, her mother, on the other hand. Worked two to three jobs at a time to pay for Tanya's skating lessons and was, in the opinion of some, her biggest champion. Aw,
1: that's nice Figure skating...
0: uh, Hold on to that. Oh, no. Figure skating is not a cheap hobby, uh, in case you didn't know. And her mom made her clothes and costumes for the most part. But that relationship was complicated to say the least.
1: It sounds so nice until you get to that part.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) You're not going to like it. (laughs) Um... Lavana believed in tough love Uh oh. she's literally on record in one of the many documentaries on tanya saying that if there was no you can't do it then tanya wouldn't do it so she basically would just tell tanya what a piece of shit she was all the time because she knew that by telling her daughter this is what she says she by telling her daughter she couldn't do something that would make her rally harder to do better gross um she said tanya uh, she had Tanya wear her skating outfit to school for school photos so that they could double as competition entry photos. Which, which... I get. She's poor. Yeah.
1: They're poor. I, I I,
0: can get that. I get that. Um, There were allegations of abuse, however, claiming that Lavana had been beating Tanya in a bathroom with a hairbrush at one point. Like somebody walked in and saw that. A woman who took lessons at the same rink as Tanya told the Chicago Tribune that Lavana once shouted at a young Tanya trying to leave the ice to go to the bathroom, I paid for you to practice, so you're going to stay on the ice and practice. And Tanya ended up urinating herself on the ice.
1: Aww.
0: Um. And from the way the article was worded, that might have happened more than once. That might have been a regular situation. That's super sad. Yeah. Another accusation on Tanya's part was that her mother threw a steak knife at her from only ten feet away that ended up like lodged in her bicep basically. God um, she said her mother never apologized. however, Lavana denies that this ever actually took place.
1: Yeah, I believe the kid like I be- oh. I mean she's an adult, but
0: hold on to that. Hold on to that too there's there's a lot of there's a lot of questions that we have about this whole situation. So Tanya said in ABC's Truth and Life special that I just mentioned um, she thought her mother was not a good one she said that she thinks her mom did her best but she only gets credit for that when somebody asks how she became such a bitch (laughs) that's those tanya's words she started skating at only three years old back when skating rinks were in malls apparently Uh, by all accounts she saw people skating on the ice and she said to her parents that she wanted to go skating and they allowed her to and it was clear pretty early on that she was a natural talent one that she called a gift from god um she has said that her attraction to skating was that it was both dainty and powerful at the same time, and she just found it very beautiful.
1: I mean, that's accurate.
0: She would go out onto the ice and mimic what the other skaters were doing, and Diane Rollinson, um, sorry, was known for not teaching small children but became Tanya's coach. Um, so like I said, she generally refused to teach kids as young as Tanya, who was four at the time. But when Tanya went on the ice, she started skating circles around Diane, and she recognized the talent and drive that the four-year-old girl had, basically. Um, and she would become a mentor on and off the ice to Tanya. During her training, Tanya said that Lavana would have a coffee thermos half full of brandy before topping it off with coffee. Lavana claims this she did no such thing. She added brandy flavoring. Uh, skating, however, was a way out for Tanya. She dropped out of high school to pursue it full time, though she ended up getting her GED in 1988. In 1986, still an unknown, Tanya was the subject of Sandra Luckow's documentary called Sharp Edges. It was, uh, it documented her first national competition when she was just 15 years old. And Margot Robbie, who would later play Tanya in the 2017 film I, Tanya, said that everything in the documentary broke her heart. There's this one scene where Tanya is on the phone with her mother who is presumably berating her for her skating because Tanya's like, I got half credit. Like she's trying to um, explain basically what's going on. And when she hangs up the phone, she looks at the camera and she says, what a bitch. Oh, jeez. Robbie said this was her favorite line in the documentary and possibly of all time of Tanya's saying it's hilarious, but it's also covering for the fact that she's so deeply hurt. Yeah. LeCou has said that she suspects Lavana felt the pain of other people taking her child away, people who were able to give her a better life. She also said that she would considered calling CPS, but was afraid it would ruin Tanya's chance for a future in skating. Diane Lon, oh, Fuck. <laughs> Diane Rawlinson was the one helping Tanya find sponsors and really wanting to raise Tanya up. In Sharp Edges, there's this part where Diane takes her to get a dress for this big formal celebration in this competition. And she gets put in this green velvet dress with puffy sleeves. It's the 80s. And you just see Tanya rolling her eyes like at the camera. She is not the sleek, elegant person they are trying to force her to be. And Tanya was Tanya. She was not dainty. She was poor. She didn't wear the same glitzy outfits as everybody else. They were homemade. Yeah. She wanted to skate to ZZ Top, not classical music. And all of that reflected in her scoring. Very few will deny that Tanya was judged unfairly because she did not fit the mold. One judge actually criticized her outfit, and Tanya told her that unless she could come up with $5,000 to buy a new costume, she could, quote, stay out of my face. Damn. So, enter Jeff Galooly. He was born in Portland, Oregon on September fifteenth, 1967. Galooly and Hardy Harding started dating when she was about 15 years old. Lots going on for Tanya in, in 86. Tanya said she fell for the first guy who told her she was pretty, but said that he became very controlling when, uh, sorry, but he became very controlling. And because he kept telling her he loved her, she kept forgiving him. They were married in 1990 when she was 19 and they were separated a year later. And this began a sort of on again, off again pattern for the couple. There were a lot of allegations of abuse over the three years they were actually married. There's A lot that's not verifiable, but according to Harding, it started with the occasional being hit or, you know, smacked around and then escalated from there, especially after the events of 1991, which I'll get to in just a moment. She said once he slammed her hand in a car door when she was trying to leave him. Um, She said there were times that he would wail about not being able to live without her and he had threatened to kill himself, even putting a gun to his head in front of her and that he had pointed a gun at her as well, claiming a a claim which Jeff would later say was utterly ridiculous. So what happened in 1991? Well, that was the year Tanya decided to make history and broke a fuck ton of records. She was the first U.S. woman and the second woman worldwide to land a triple axel. Now, this is not a common thing even today. It's not like um, people, the way they look at gymnastics now or like you look at gymnastics 10 years ago and it's like suddenly they're doing 8,000 more flips than they did in the 90s. Yeah. I think I was reading that there are basically less than 10 women who have ever successfully landed one. So the movie, they actually had to use specific special effects to recreate the scene because they couldn't even find a double to be able to recreate it. That's crazy. Then at the World Figure Skating Championships in Munich, she became the first woman to complete a triple axel in an international event. At fall 1991 Skate America, she had three more triple axel first, becoming the first woman to complete one in a short program, the first to execute two in a single competition, and the first ever to execute a triple axel combined with a double toe loop. Which sounds impressive. I have no idea what that is. <laughs> so this was a huge moment for her. And you can see that moment when she when she lands that first one in that mint green dress, you just see all of that excitement. And she's finally feeling validation from other people around her. And she's she's literally celebrating as she goes through the rest of the program. And one of the announcers immediately yells into the microphone when she lands it. Good girl. And the crowd is going nuts. And she's getting like I said, she's she's been craving this attention and she's 20 years old. She's finally getting it. Yeah. She starts getting offers and sponsorships. And that's when Jeff allegedly started getting more controlling and um, his abuse really peaked, according to her. Um, and representatives from the tanya harding nancy kerrigan 1994 museum blame him for what happens next Uh, so he's seen all her sessions he's at all of her interviews and in the abc special she recalls at one point getting nachos from a 7-eleven and he tells her that they're going to make her fat and slaps them out of her hand before then hitting her in one interview jeff was quoted as saying we might get into a little brawl now and then about what's going to go on and usually she wins i mean I'll admit it to the world. She's the boss of the family.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Tanya has agreed that she fought back physically, but that it didn't help the situation and only made things worse. Um. Well, oh, this made me so mad. <laughs> There's a moment where uh, Connie Chung is being interviewed, and I feel like she's rather unkind to Tanya, saying that um they were separated. They got she got a restraining order to keep him away from her, and then she went back to him. And she calls Tanya a mess. And while arguably not wrong, it's certainly not something anybody who's ever experienced abuse would ever say, because that's sort of the nature of the beast. Yeah. You get pulled into this manipulative cycle of who else is going to love me? I'm going to go back to the person who hits me and loves me instead of
1: not ever being
0: loved. Right. And uh, Jeff, Jeff apparently needed to know where she was at all times. Well, yeah, he's an abuser. So... She seemed to lose her drive and stopped practicing at this point. Um, She showed up to the 1992 Olympics three days before the events, uh, missing the opening ceremonies and everything. Most people were there like a week early. And it was a huge disappointment for her. She fell trying to land her triple axel. Uh, This is where the excuses really start piling on for her. She was like, oh, my blade was put on incorrectly. And if you look, all of my jumps were off. Uh, And she later said, my skating was great, but my life was in shambles. She also admitted that she'd been lazy but was hoping to pull it out of a hat and had more problems going on at home. Tanya's coach at that time was Dodie Teachman and she and Jeff were not on good terms but she said when it came to Tanya Jeff had more pull. And Tanya said she didn't she didn't know any better. Look at her family life like that was she didn't know love in her home and yeah. she had known violence and that was just normal. I should also mention that Tanya has or was a known smoker and asthmatic. So like when you see her come off the ice from her programs, she's got her inhaler in her hand and she's coughing like crazy. But she ended up fourth in the Olympics behind fellow U.S. competitor Nancy Kerrigan. So Nancy Kerrigan was born in Stoneham, Massachusetts on October 13th, 1969. She was raised by a working class family, recalling her father coming home for dinner before going back out to his second job. She has said that her family couldn't afford her skating, but they made it happen. And despite what may seem like similarities on the the surface, Nancy's life was stable. She was, you know, she had two parents. They weren't moving around a bunch. Nobody was beating her or talking down to her or belittling her. She was regarded as a feisty tomboy who played hockey with her brothers. Um, She was even saying in one interview that her coaches had to basically unteach the way she skated because she was so used to, like, leaning forward and getting as much speed as she could on the ice like her brothers did in hockey. Yeah. Um, But they were able to smooth out her edges, and she fit the mold. She learned to play by those unwritten rules that Tanya railed so hard against. She was considered graceful and even compared to an angel on the ice. She was the all-American girl. Tanya says in a number of interviews that she was never jealous of Nancy and that they had been friends, agreeing that Nancy had worked her whole life to get to where she was. Witnesses, however, said they weren't friends. Not that there had been any animosity, but they weren't they weren't close, and this was confirmed by Kerrigan. They'd shared rooms during competitions, but they weren't pals. Tanya's coach even said Tanya was friendliest <laughs> to those she didn't perceive as a threat. So it made sense that she would not be friends with Kerrigan. Yeah. And the media didn't hold back either. They were, like, putting pitting the two up against each other as the, quote, beautiful princess and evil stepsister. Ew. Yeah. So it was announced in 1992 that the Winter Olympics and the Summer Olympics would now be split and on a rotating schedule. So the Winter Olympics would actually be taking place again in 1994. So Tanya jumped on the opportunity. In 1993, Kerrigan was the current U.S. champion. Harding and Galuli had legally divorced but reconciled sh- shortly after. The 1994 championships were coming up in Detroit that January. And during the placement for nationals, Tanya tried to apply for an exemption, but was denied. Ended up getting one later as a, quote, death threat was called into the arena against her. Suspiciously. That brings us to the Kobo Arena in Detroit, January 6, 1994. Nancy had finished practicing for the day. She walked through the curtain off the ice when she was attacked from behind using a 21-inch telescopic baton. It was swung with both hands at her right knee before the perpetrator fled the scene. There were film crews there watching Nancy skate. So when she started screaming, of course, they were able to capture it on film. And you can tell in this footage, you can, I mean, you can find it anywhere. Um, she's in excruciating pain and she's famously screaming, why, why? And later, what, this is the thing that ticks me off. Later, that that clip what with what started as public horrified concern turned into a mockery, and people were like calling her whiny and making fun of her. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not you get hit in the knee with but... a fucking baton. She couldn't. Well, bear you get weight. you
1: get hit in the knee with a fucking baton. Period. But also, you get hit in the knee with a fucking baton during one of the most important events of your life oh yeah also you're a professional athlete and if your knee is gone you're done yep yep there's no like coming back from a severe knee injury Mm Hmm. so especially in ice skating
0: yeah so she couldn't bear weight on her leg Her knee was incredibly stiff and swollen and bruised, but thankfully it hadn't been fractured. The assailant was described as a tall white man in a leather jacket who had been seen headbutting the locked glass door to break through and get away. Tanya was asked in a recent interview to talk about her day on January 6th, 1994. And she just blinks at the camera and goes, which day is that? And I'm like, bitch, this has been following you since you were 23 years old. You fucking know what day that is. Which is, this is why like, I believe that she was abused by her mother. But there are things that are coming up next that start to, like, call into question her honesty and how much is actually, actually accurate. So when they tell her what day it was, she then says, oh, i had been training that afternoon and I was asleep when my choreographer woke me up and told me what happened. Three days after the incident, the two were photographed beside each other for an Olympic team photo. She mentioned that she and the other skaters became worried that something similar would happen to them. People asked Nancy if they thought Tanya was involved, an idea she considered ridiculous. Meanwhile, Tanya took the U.S. title.
1: I mean, I definitely understand the other athletes being like, holy shit, there's a crazy man who... Does, yeah, oh, absolutely. You know, what if that's me next? I, yeah,
0: 100% understand that concern. So it wasn't long before Tom Brokaw was reporting that Harding's ex-husband Jeff Gillooly was behind the plot to attack Nancy Kerrigan. Also,
1: I meant to say this earlier. What a terrible last name.
0: Right? I love it. Galuli.
1: It just it sounds gross. Like have I'm sorry watched... I'm sorry for any Galulies out there. <laughs> I feel like your name sounds gross. Have have you watched the movie? I Tonya? Yeah. No.
0: You should. I'll tell you why at the end. But Okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> I talk about the movie at the end. So So these criminals um were bumbling fucking moron so jeff Jeff Kaluli, and his friend and tanya's supposed bodyguard sean eckhart um as well as derek smith and shane stant were all arrested in connection with the attack over the next few weeks tanya was questioned for something like 10 hours i think the transcript was like 103 pages long and oh eckhart was like the main character throughout His mother was even in on it. She made the airline arrangements for Stan and Smith, as the original scheme was to attack Kerrigan in Boston. And according to the Baltimore Sun, the plot revolved around Eckhart's claims to being a big timer in the espionage game, which he was not. Shocker. He even sold this idea to Galooly with the, quote, money back guarantee.
1: I hope Gululi got his money back.
0: i don't think he did smith was the getaway driver and stant was the hitman and um they were they considered themselves to be reluctant uh shit what's the word accomplices reluctant participants uh because they definitely were more than accomplices uh eckhart um hold on i just moved my page in the wrong direction i
1: hate when that happens
0: eckhart claimed that smith the getaway driver uh said he and stant um were reluctant participants, and that Eckhart and galuli wanted it done. So they agreed to do it, hoping that the pair wouldn't... Er, Eckhart? Sorry. Smith and Stant agreed to do it because they were worried that they would hire somebody who would hurt Kerrigan even worse if they didn't do it. Implying that they were... We're the good guys. We pulled our punches. Essentially.
1: I mean, but there is a there's bit some, of... There's some there's, yeah. accuracy to that. Because but... they could have gone to somebody else who would have hurt her more permanently
0: uh there's an extensive paper trail of using personal credit cards wiring money registering in hotels with their real names it was (laughs) so fucking stupid
1: well yeah i mean i i'm not trying to say that like people who drop out of high school are automatically stupid or whatever but like Things in in Tanya's life are not indicating that she is a particularly brilliant person.
0: Right. Well,
1: you know, like to, up to s- this point,
0: we don't know that Tanya is involved. And Galuli did graduate high school, as far as I know.
1: Galuli's last name is also Galuli. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but Eckhart is not. A, he is not a smart man. <laughs> so but does he uh, know what love is? He. I don't think he knows. He knows how to love his mama. Apparently. Ew. Um. i didn't mean that in that way but yes i wouldn't be surprised anyway i watched some of eckhart's interviews with diane sawyer um where he said jeff used terms like um take her out but they talked down to from from the outright death to just maiming Uh,
1: i mean if it's (laughs) gotta be one or the other i guess like
0: he also tells her that So he's, he's basically explaining like oh I, I talked Jeff down from killing to just maiming and that maybe we could uh, it was it was Jeff's idea to take out her landing leg in particular but like nothing nothing permanent we just wanted to hurt her so that Tanya had a chance basically and he starts telling Diane Sawyer that he has this training in counter espionage and counter terrorism and I've done extensive research into terrorism trends and profiles and I've been quoted as an expert in those subjects and Diane Sawyer just goes where <laughs> <laughs> he goes oh you know of travel magazine during the Gulf War <laughs> what dude it's so dumb it's so bad so meanwhile harding is maintaining in her interviews that she knows nothing but about eight hours in she was asked do you know what hindering the prosecution is she has a she has a recess with her lawyer she comes back and says i didn't know anything prior to the attack i only found out about it later <laughs> um and Smartest she did thing she's done she did implicate galuli though and alleged in in one of her interviews she said she asked for protection from him as if she thought he would kill her um something he was later informed by the fbi he was informed of this and uh the fbi let galuli see the notes of her interview. to which harding said that's cheating (laughs) it's also said that she told the fbi at the end of her interrogation that she was sorry for lying to them but quote i hope everybody understands i'm telling on someone i really care about galuli meanwhile was questioned for 17 and a half hours about the assault claiming that Harding had given him the okay to carry out the attack. He claimed that she called him after the attack and told him that it had been done, and they had initially agreed on a cover story, and he only began cooperating with the FBI after he was made aware that she'd implicated him. There was a scrap of paper found in the trash listing Nancy's training schedule that was allegedly in Tanya's handwriting. I know how you feel about handwriting analysis. So that's why I said it like that. <laughs> well, Harding told... ESPN that the handwriting analysis proved it was not her handwriting. Norm Fink, sorry Norm frink which is a better name uh, was the lead prosecutor on the Harding case told the Organian in fact they were in her handwriting according to the an- the analysis and they were confirmed together with telephone records and testimony of the person she talked to that Harding called an acquaintance of hers to secure the location of Kerrigan's practice facility which also there's a great story like apparently on that piece of paper. They wrote that it was Tuna can Arena, but it was <laughs> the Tony Kent Arena. The
1: Tony Can Arena. <laughs> that sounds like a real place, though.
0: <laughs> there was apparently also some evidence of her using uh, her skater association money to fund the attack, and there were testimonies from witnesses like her coach and choreographer that um, negated her alibi, or you know, assisted by providing some pretty damning implications, essentially. In a press conference, she told the media that she had no prior knowledge, but, quote, I am responsible, however, for failing to report things I learned about the assault when I returned from Nationals. Years later, in the book Tanya Tapes, uh, Tanya uh, said that she did plan on reaching out to the police, but that, quote, quote, Jeff and two other guys don't know who they were. They were in a different car, decided to drive me up to the mountains, put a gun to my head, and take themselves upon me. They told me, this is what you're going to say, this is what you're going to do, and if you don't, you're not going to be here anymore. Galuli ended up pleading guilty for the reduced sentence and to halt any further prosecution. Harding still trained throughout January for the Olympics and was essentially running from the press. Meanwhile, I love this part. Kerrigan felt like she was a hostage in her own home from the number of reporters outside. They lined her driveway. But she did order them pizza because she felt bad that they were waiting outside in the cold for hours. The Skating Association met in February to discuss Tanya's future in skating, but she was allowed to continue on to the games that month. She was asked in one of the press conferences, you lied to us this year. Your lawyer said you weren't truthful to the FBI and you failed two polygraphs. Why should we believe anything you say? Tanya has said she tried to speak to Nancy when she arrived, but Nancy looked at her like she was a piece of shit and wouldn't talk to her. I
1: mean, I don't blame her.
0: (laughs) Nancy said they never interacted at the games.
1: I wouldn't blame her. If he had reacted that way.
0: There was one practice session where the two were on the ice together and there are like 400 cameras there just waiting for the shot of them passing each other on the ice. And Nancy was wearing the same white lacy dress that she'd been attacked in.
1: Damn.
0: Tanya claimed she knew that she would be ridiculed but wanted to show the world that she had earned her spot at the Olympics. She did not do that. She placed eighth, blaming a faulty shoelace for her nerves. Kerrigan got silver Oksana Bayul got the gold.
1: I remember her. I've seen her skate.
0: <laughs> yeah. The best one of my favorite things about Nancy Kerrigan is so bad. So you know Oksana Bayul was uh, a Ukrainian orphan mm-hmm. and was taken in by the by the skating coach and became this superstar. Well, Oksana Bayul gets like definitely wins the gold. She knows it. She's on the ice, she's sobbing. They take her off the ice and everybody's getting ready for the medals. And Nancy <laughs> Kerrigan's mic is open oh no <laughs> she's like what's taking so long and they're like oh they're reapplying oxana's makeup because she cried it all off on the ice and she wants the makeup on for the medals and nancy is heard on this open mic going oh come on she's just gonna cry it off again up there and so nancy got this like reputation of being mean to orphans <laughs> it's crazy all right, anyway, but
1: i mean like <laughs> i get where she's coming from it's gotta be like you're disappointed you lost and now we have to wait around for the person who won to yeah. look better and i just <laughs> want to take these fucking skates off and like go have a pizza about it but
0: no we're waiting all- on this orphan <laughs> <laughs> there's also this like she was at this celebratory disney parade later on and they asked her to put on her medal for the parade while she's with mickey mouse um and one of the things in this interview nancy said early on she's like my coach didn't ever want me to wear my medals or like brag about how i'd placed because she wanted me to be humble and so when they asked her to wear the medal she was she felt embarrassed she was like i don't want people to think i'm bragging about my silver medal and she was like this is so corny well the hot mic was open and heard her next to mickey was going this is so corny i hate this <laughs> she needs to be checking her fucking mic i was like yeah girl you need to watch what you say anyway that's enough about nancy kerrigan i just think she's so great because she's saying all the things i would say <laughs> So on March sixteenth, nineteen ninety-four, at age twenty-three, Tanya pled guilty to hindering the prosecution, receiving three years probation with five hundred hours of community service and a fine of one hundred thousand dollars. She also gave fifty thousand dollars to the Oregon Special Olympics and had to undergo a psyche vow. I fair. Sure. <laughs> she probably needed one. Yeah. She was stripped of her national title and banned from the sorry, she was stripped of her national title and banned from the National Skating Association for Life. Wow. Tanya and Nancy were a part of a staged apology in 1998, meeting face-to-face for the first time since the Olympics. I tend to believe that Tanya was a victim in her own way, but this apology was absolute bullshit. She opens with, I want to apologize again for being in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people. (laughs) Good apology. Yeah, no, thanks for that.
1: Uh, I'm sorry you got offended. (laughs) (laughs)
0: despite never properly apologizing for her involvement in a 2014 interview with bob costas kerrigan said whatever apology tanya has given i accept it it's time for all of us i've wanted i've always wished her well she has her own family i have mine it's time to make out er, or it's time to make our focus make that our focus and move on with our lives Ooh, it's time to make out is not what she said <laughs> I don't think Nancy Kerrigan's in that life. Uh, Harding has I'm since attempted makeup. a career <laughs> she's since attempted a career in boxing as well as taking uh, reality TV opportunities. She says she's not ashamed to use her name for, to make money to quote pay the bills because I gotta am gonna survive. Nobody's gonna take anything else away from me. She had a brief second ma- second marriage in 1995 before marrying her current husband in ni- in 1910 no <laughs> 2010 with whom she had a husband a son i'm starting that one over you can keep that in but i'm starting over for clarification she had a brief second marriage in 1995 (laughs) before marrying her current husband in 2010 with whom she had a son (laughs) we're gonna we're gonna pause for roya to turn a shade that is not her t-shirt <laughs> you okay? I'm crying.
1: <laughs> <sighs> yeah, I'm okay. good. Okay. I can't wait to listen to that again.
0: <laughs> she continued to use her name, being involved in a number of book deals, documentaries, and reality TV series like True TV's World Dumbest, but also finishing third in season 26 of Dancing with the Stars and winning the 16th season of Food Network's Worst Cooks in America Celebrity Edition as of 2017 she was working as a deck builder and a house painter and she still does not speak to her mother in the 2017 film i tanya uh it was it starred margot robbie as tanya which i mentioned before um sebastian stan played jeff galuli and allison janney was lavana golden allison janney in that movie fucking killed me she was so good uh, the movie starts with this title card that says, based on irony-free, wildly contradictory, totally true interviews with Tanya Harding and Jeff Gillooly." While there's plenty of artistic license, many of the events discussed in this episode were featured in the movie, largely leaning on the story from Tanya's perspective. Uh, the title is a play on the novel I, Claudius, which was written by Robert Graves in 1934, uh, as if it were an autobiography of Emperor Claudius. The film has received some criticism for what is perceived as a comedic portrayal of Tanya's abuse uh, as she breaks the fourth wall. But director Craig Gillespie uh, defends this choice. Uh, in, a, in a Vulture article, he said that he considered those scenes carefully and he hoped that the fourth wall breaks would soften the blows of seeing all the abuse. He said, it's part of trying to get into the mindset she's in. When you see her in interviews, she's very casual about her mother beating her. It would be handled in such a matter-of-fact way when Tani would talk about it, you could see how desensitized to it uh, she was to the violence. Yeah. So how do we show that to the audience? The idea of breaking the fourth wall, which wasn't scripted, I thought, let's try this in this violent moment. It reinforced that she's not connected. Yeah, like, like, she's wow.
1: she's so disconnected that she's like interacting with someone who's like not even there. Right. Like that's how disconnected she is. I mean, it it seems like a valid artistic choice to me. I can see where the criticism comes from as far as like softening it too much. Yeah. But it's also like a, a fine line between like how how dark do we want this movie to get?
0: Yes. Yeah. And and it certainly uh, for me when I watched it the first time it, it didn't read comedic to me it it felt very much what that is is like there's this we're desensitized to this sort of moment where you're like oh okay okay like that's that's how it's handled here like that's how she's feeling about it and after watching the interviews he's absolutely right she is very just like candid she's just like whatever yeah i got beat as a kid it sucked yeah <laughs> like, who didn't it yeah and margot robbie actually spoke to w magazine saying when we screened the film at toronto international film festival the whole audience gasped when galuli hit her but six minutes later he did something kind and the audience went Aww, that was interesting to me and explained something about the insidious nature of domestic Mm -hmm. violence the audience forgave him so quickly how could you blame tanya for going back to him and i was like "Ooh, that gave me chills margot robbie I, by the way, did not say awe. I was like, wow, you're gross. The film had a rather measly budget of $11 million, uh, but grossed 53.9 mil at the box office.
1: Yeah, it was very uh, highly reviewed.
0: Yeah, uh, she did a lot of her own skating, but she did have two skate doubles for the more difficult maneuvers. Um, interestingly, Allison Janney had seriously trained to be a figure skater at, in her childhood, but injured her leg when she was 17 and couldn't continue. She also won an Oscar <laughs> Critics' Choice Movie Award, a BAFTA, an AACTA International Award, and a SAG Award for her portrayal of Lavana. Wow. She was so fucking good. The whole movie was shot in 30 days. Margot and sebastian were both able to meet with their respective character person um that they'd be playing and harding even offered to skate with robbie to show her some techniques um not wanting to give, not wanting her to get injured while filming
1: oh that's nice yeah i was i was gonna ask if they were able to meet the yeah there's
0: actually a really beautiful cover of hollywood reporter of robbie and harding together it's, it's really, she's like, you know, Margot Robbie is like stunningly beautiful. And then Tanya Harding, they like glossed her up as much as like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it, no, it was, it was really impressive. Um, actually, Robbie was quoted as saying totally out of context that she 100% was on Harding's side. She ended up going on Good Morning America and people were like, you're on Tanya Harding's side. She's like, that is taken out of context. What I said was when you are playing a character, you have to be 100% them like on their side yeah i had to take everything from tanya's perspective the story she gave and that was my perspective like i had to be 100 on her side i couldn't be on jeff's side as tanya as an actress yeah that sort of thing
1: well yeah and it's it's uh Something that I imagine, like, defense attorneys have to struggle with, too. Oh, yeah. In a, a similar but different way. Obviously, the context of the situation is very different. But, you know, even when you know that you're the person that you're defending is guilty, yeah. your your goal is still to either try to prove innocence or try to diminish the guilt. Right. You know, so you have to kind of put maybe some of your morals and your... Things aside to make sure that they get a fair trial and that they're treated appropriately.
0: And on that topic, that attorney, Norm Frank, was particularly annoyed by the idea of the movie. He said, Apparently in I, tanya facts can be adjusted as needed to support her grievances against the world and her image of herself. When you might win an Oscar, truth, it appears, doesn't really matter. But for me, Margot Robbie and tanya Harding aside, it does. I'm like, Give fuck, dude, it's art.
1: Yeah. <laughs> But, I mean, art is always subjective. Yeah. There's always going to be someone who doesn't like it.
0: So, yeah, when when you watch Tanya Harding in these interviews, you do get a very, like, how much did you really know? I do believe, like I said, that she is a victim in her own right, in her own way. But I don't know that she's a victim in that particular set of circumstances. I was like, maybe she was talking to them and was like oh yeah haha let's goof off and talk about killing nate's care again because i'm jealous and upset that i'm not gonna win basically because i've i've joked about killing people before <laughs> i would never actually do it though yeah also you know when somebody if you are truly feeling that threatened by your spouse or your abuser you're gonna go along with whatever they're doing you know and people didn't want to believe that she could be a victim because she was so tough yeah so
1: well and it's also like we're it it could have been a diminished situation of we're gonna scare her yeah is what you know tanya thought was going to happen but then it became physical and then now tanya is being implicated in way worse than just like trying to scare threaten you know nancy kerrigan or something to throw her off her game
0: that's how it's portrayed in the movies is that she and gululi both go into this thinking that they're just going to deliver some like threatening letters like the threat that tanya got at the um the preliminary placement Uh um but that i couldn't find any actual evidence to that being the case and that may have been artistic license yeah but like you said like that could very well be the case of it it escalated and you're in a position where you like what are you if somebody's talking about killing somebody for you are you gonna argue like and potentially get killed yourself i don't know
1: yeah it definitely depends a lot on the mindset of the person and i mean you know tanya harding's whole life she's been told that like she can't do it but also failure isn't an option right and so i can see how I think a lot of Olympic athletes are given that kind of mindset, which is unfortunate and pushes a lot of them past a safe level, both in a mental capacity as well as physical limitations.
0: Um, Uh, And if that weren't the case, we wouldn't have people like doping and having to take enhancers to try and win.
1: Yeah, and we wouldn't have um, situations like... uh,
0: Oh, what's her name? From like the 90... Six Olympics? There was also a tennis player I read about who I think it was like nine months before the kerrigan attack got stabbed in the back. Uh, that was wild.
1: What is her fucking name? I know it. Carrie Strug. Carrie Strug was um in the Olympics gymnastics and she fell, she was complaining that her ankle had been hurting. She oh, yeah, didn't, yeah, 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 yeah. didn't want to compete. She didn't feel they... up to it, but they pressured slash encouraged her to do so and when she landed... At uh, one of her uh, moves, she broke her ankle and then continued Continued. the rest of her set and then was hailed as a hero and incredible and all of these things when she was encouraged to end her career, basically. And, you know, like, that's the kind of stuff, and I I do think that it is getting better in some areas of the world, but this Winter Mm -hmm. Olympics has kind of proven that not so much in other areas of the
0: world. Um, I felt so bad for that girl. I did too. Didn't she, like, give up her American citizenship to skate for China?
1: Well, there's her, and then there's the the Russian girl who was doping and accidentally took her grandpa's pills. Yeah. Uh, uh-huh. Sure. Yeah, we don't
0: believe you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Roy and I are both really fat and can't do anything athletic, but we don't believe you.
1: <laughs> not when your grandpa's pills include performance enhancing drugs. Enhancing drugs. <laughs> <laughs> like, and but but still like the the fact of the matter is that like it's a it's a problem for a lot of kids going into any kind of sports when their parents take it too seriously and it puts a lot of pressure onto them and I think I've seen Remember the Titans (laughs) and I think that this is not necessarily excluded from that conversation because she was very much she had the pressure of her entire family put onto her especially after she started succeeding
0: and especially like when your mom gives up so much time and money for you to do this thing and then you're constantly told by her like i'm spending all this money on you and you're a fucking failure like i can't imagine what that does to you i mean i have i have a slight idea from my own experience, <laughs> but say. you know like i like to that to that extreme i i don't know how that feels yeah
1: but i yeah it, it just makes me wonder how much like you said how much she really did know because it doesn't seem like anything that has been indicated in her past that uh Tanya Harding was ever the one to take the easy way out. Right. And this is definitely the easy way out. Taking out your number one biggest competition is one hundred percent taking the easy way out.
0: Oh one hundred percent
1: yeah. And it's it just seems unlike her. She seems like one of those like I wanna be the best by beating the best kind of people. Yeah. I was trying to see if
0: uh that observer um channel that does the uh like body language reviews Uh if he did one on tanya harding because i would be interested to know if he did because i i was watching her like how she's talking and how she's carrying herself um to like try to decide if i could see if she was lying and there are some where she's looking away from the person a lot and you're like (laughs) (laughs) but but there are others where she's not and where she she talks very candidly and there's just you know i don't know i, I want to know if somebody's ever done a done a body language analysis which isn't always accurate but yeah. nonverbal communication is certainly something to can, to keep in mind mm-hmm. i don't know anyway that's tanya harding i think it's a fascinating case she's a fascinating person and regardless of whether or not she's you know done this terrible thing i think uh i'm i kind of feel like she she could be considered somebody to look up to in a lot of other regards
1: yeah
0: um maybe not by everybody but you know nuance is important
1: <laughs> yeah i mean she's definitely a a good person to look up to that like making one bad decision doesn't mean that everything is over for you right you know that's a positive to take away from this for her
0: thanks for joining us today while we discuss these based on a true story kind of movies Uh, we hope that you will reach out to us with your own experiences we want your stories your questions and your feedback just send us an email at stranger podcast at gmail.com if you are sending a a story we ask that you put listener story in the subject line so that we can sort through those a little more easily were you alive during the nancy kerrigan (laughs) tiny Harding scandal of 1994
1: were you alive during
0: the moonlight Murders? (laughs) God. Are you that old of listening to our <laughs> podcast? Because I would be very interested in talking to you. Yeah,
1: I want to hear the the strange and unusual grandma.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do.
1: Um, you can also find us on Instagram at strange underscore unusual underscore podcast or our personal accounts, Roy Rampage and Calamity Casey, where we post the weird shit in our personal lives. You can find us on Twitter at underscore strange unusual at Calamity Casey and at Roy Rampage. We're also on Facebook. Just search for the Strange and Unusual podcast and look for our logo. If you'd like, you can join us over on Patreon.com slash strange unusual. We've got access to bonus episodes, Patreon, polls, uh, a variety of different things with new Patreon episodes set to start coming out uh, in March, actually. Our first new one should be going up. So if you can't uh, support us financially, we totally understand. We ask that you just like, share, subscribe, rate, review, uh, share us with your friends, share us with your enemies, you know, I don't know, play us in your hair salon there you go That's uh, a
0: good one. do a do a skating uh, routine to our podcast <laughs> do a skating routine to Roya laughing at me <laughs> saying she had a husband with her husband oh <laughs> uh, anyway I even made the font bigger so that I would be able to read more clearly because I thought maybe that was the issue is that I was like cramming all my words together Uh huh. did not help have a husband with your husband <laughs> <laughs> I think I know the name of the episode <laughs>
1: there are a few good ones but anyway (laughs) bye bye oh my god i haven't laughed that hard in a minute